Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Winged Death by H.P. Lovecraft and Hazel Heald. I'm your narrator, Jim Campanella. Winged Death is a short story by American horror fiction writer Lovecraft, with some input by Heald. It was published in 1933. Oddly, this is one of those rare Lovecraft stories whose origins and background are hard to pin down. This may be in part because the story was co-written by Heald that it is generally ignored by Lovecraft aficionados. What we can say about the story is that it is a wonderfully creeping horror of a thing that sneaks up on you. This is one of those stories that starts at the end, so you actually know what will happen. The true horror of the narrative is that you're dragged into it by sheer force of will toward the inevitable conclusion. Winged Death is one of Lovecraft's many very early stories, we think, that are now lost. It's thought that this one predates its original publication by quite a bit, and probably dates back to the early 1900s. Lovecraft's stories like this, in actual book form, are now becoming extremely scarce to find and increasingly expensive. We at Uvila Audio are proud to reproduce this work in its audio form for the newest generation to enjoy. And now, Winged Death. The Orange Hotel stands in High Street, near the railway station in Bloemfontein, South Africa. On Sunday, January 24, 1932, four men sat shivering from terror in a room on its third floor. One was George C. Titteridge, proprietor of the hotel. Another was Police Constable Ian DeWitt of the Central Station. A third was Johannes Bogart, the local coroner. And the fourth, and apparently the least disorganized of the group, was Dr. Cornelius Van Coolen, the coroner's physician. On the floor, uncomfortably evident amidst the stifling summer heat, was the body of a dead man. But this was not what the four were afraid of. Their glances wandered from the table on which lay a curious assortment of things, to the ceiling overhead, across whose smooth whiteness a series of huge, faltering, alphabetical characters had somehow been scrawled in ink. And every now and then, Dr. Van Kulen would glance half-furtively at a worn leather blank book which he held in his left hand. The horror of the four seemed about equally divided among the blank book, the scrawled words on the ceiling, and a dead fly of peculiar aspect which floated in a bottle of ammonia on the table. Also on the table were an open inkwell, a pen and writing pad, a physician's medical case, a bottle of hydrochloric acid, and a tumbler about a quarter full of black oxide of manganese. The worn leather book was the journal of the dead man on the floor, and had at once made it clear that the name Frederick N. Mason, Mining Properties, Toronto, Canada, signed in the hotel register, was a false one. There were other things, terrible things, which it likewise made clear, and still other things of a far greater terror at which it hinted hideously without making them clear 
or even fully believable. It was the half-belief of the four men, fostered by their lives, spent close to the black, settled secrets of brooding Africa, which made them shiver so violently in spite of the searing January heat. The blank book was not a large one, and the entries were in a fine handwriting, which, however, grew careless and nervous-looking toward the last. It consisted of a series of jottings at first, rather irregularly spaced, but finally becoming daily. To call it a diary would not be quite correct, for it chronicled only one set of its writer's activities. Dr. Van Coolen recognized the name of the dead man the moment he opened the cover, for it was that of an eminent member of his own profession who had been largely connected with African matters. In another moment he was horrified to find this name linked with a dastardly crime, officially unsolved, which had filled the newspapers some four months before. And the farther he read, the deeper grew his horror, awe, and sense of loathing and panic. Here, in essence, is the text which the doctor read aloud in that sinister and increasingly noisome room while the three men around him breathed hard, fidgeted in their chairs, and darted frightened glances at the ceiling, the table, the thing on the floor, and one other. The Journal of Thomas Slaunwhite, M.D. Touching punishment of Henry Sergeant Moore, Ph.D., of Brooklyn, New York, Professor of Invertebrate Biology in Columbia University, New York, New York, prepared to be read after my death for the satisfaction of making public the accomplishment of my revenge, which may otherwise never be imputed to me, even if it succeeds. January 5, 1929 I have now fully resolved to kill Dr. Henry Moore, and a recent incident has shown me how I shall do it. From now on I shall follow a consistent line of action, hence the beginning of this journal. It is hardly necessary to repeat the circumstances which have driven me to this course, for the informed part of the public is familiar with all the salient facts. I was born in Trenton, New Jersey, on April 12, 1885, the son of Dr. Paul Slaunwhite, formerly of Pretoria, Transvaal, South Africa. Studying medicine as part of my family tradition, I was led by my father to specialize in African fevers, and after my graduation from Columbia, spent much time in researches which took me from Durban in Natal up to the equator itself. In Mombasa, I worked out my new theory of the transmission and development of remittent fever, aided only slightly by the papers of the late government physician, Sir Norman Sloane, which I found in the house I occupied. When I published my results, I became, at a single stroke, a famous authority. I was told of the probability of an almost supreme position in the South African Health Service, and even a probable knighthood, in the event of my becoming a naturalized citizen, and accordingly I took the necessary steps. Then occurred the incident for which I am about to kill Henry Moore. 
This man, my classmate and friend of years in America and Africa, chose deliberately to undermine my claim to my own theory, alleging that Sir Thomas Sloane had anticipated me in every essential detail, and implying I had probably found more of his papers than I stated in my account of the matter. To buttress this absurd accusation, he produced certain personal letters from Sir Norman, which indeed showed that the older man had been over my ground, and that he would have published his results very soon, but for his sudden death. This much I could only admit with regret. What I could not excuse was the jealous suspicion that I had stolen the theory from Sir Norman's papers. The British government, sensibly enough, ignored these aspersions, but withheld the half-promised appointment and knighthood on the ground that my theory, while original with me, was not, in fact, new. I could see that my career in Africa was perceptibly checked. Though I had placed all my hopes on such a career, even to the point of resigning American citizenship. A distinct coolness toward me had arisen among the government set in Mombasa, especially among those who had known Sir Norman. It was then that I resolved to be even with Moore sooner or later, even though I did not know how. He had been jealous of my early celebrity and had taken advantage of his old correspondence with Sir Norman to ruin me. This from the friend whom I had myself led to take an interest in Africa, whom I had coached and inspired till he achieved his present moderate fame as an authority on African entomology. Even now, though, I will not deny that his attainments are profound. I made him, and in return he has ruined me. Now, some day, I shall destroy him. When I saw myself losing ground in Mombasa, I applied for my present situation in the interior at Mugonga, only fifty miles from the Ugandan line. It is a cotton and ivory trading post, with only eight white men besides myself. A beastly hole, almost on the equator and full of every sort of fever known to mankind. Poisonous snakes and insects everywhere, and blacks with diseases nobody ever heard of outside of medical college. But my work is not hard, and I have always had plenty of time to plan things to do to Henry Moore. It amuses me to give his diptera of Central and Southern Africa a prominent place on my shelf. I suppose it actually is a standard manual. They use it at Columbia, Harvard, and the University of Wisconsin but my own suggestions are really responsible for half its strong points. Last week I encountered the thing which decided me how to kill Moore. A party from Uganda brought in a black with a queer illness which I can't yet diagnose. He was lethargic, with a very low temperature, and shuffled in a peculiar way. Most of the others were afraid of him, and said he was under some kind of witch-doctor spell. But Gobo, the interpreter, said he had been bitten by an insect. What it was, I can't imagine, for there was only a slight puncture on his arm. It was bright red, though, with a 
purple ring around it, spectral-looking. I don't wonder the boys lay it down to black magic. They seem to have seen cases like this before, and say there's really nothing to do about it. Old Nkuru, one of the Gala boys of the post, says it must be the bite of a devil fly, which makes its victim waste away gradually and die, and then takes hold of his soul and personality, if it is still alive itself, flying around with all his likes and dislikes and consciousness. A queer legend, and I don't know of any local insect deadly enough to account for it. I gave this sick black, his name is Mavana, a good shot of quinine, and took a sample of his blood for testing, but haven't made much progress. There's certainly a strange germ present, but I can't even remotely identify it. The nearest thing to it is the bacillus one finds in oxen, horses, and dogs that the tsetse fly has bitten. But tsetse flies don't infect human beings, and this is too far north for them anyway. However, the important thing is I've decided how to kill more. If this interior region has insects as poisonous as the natives say, I'll see that he gets a shipment of them from a source he won't suspect, with plenty of assurances of their harmlessness. Trust him to throw overboard all caution when it comes to studying an unknown species, and then we'll see how nature takes its course. It ought not be hard to find an insect that scares the blacks so much. First to see how poor Mavana turns out, and then we'll find my envoy of death. January 7th Mavana is no better, though I have injected all the antitoxins I know of. He has fits of trembling in which he rants affrightedly about the way his soul will pass when he dies into the insect that bit him, but between them he remains in a kind of half-stupor. His heart action is still strong, so I may pull him through. I shall try to, for he can probably guide me better than anyone else to the region where he was bitten. Meanwhile, I'll write to Dr. Lincoln, my predecessor here, for Alan, the head factor, says he had a profound knowledge of the local sicknesses. He ought to know about the death fly if any white man does. He's at Nairobi now, and a black runner ought to get me a reply in a week, using the railway for half the trip. January 10th Patient unchanged, but I have found what I want. It was in an old volume of the local health records, which I have been going over diligently while waiting to hear from Lincoln. Thirty years ago, there was an epidemic that killed off thousands of natives in Uganda, and it was definitely traced to a rare fly called Glossina palpalis, a sort of cousin of the Glossina marsitans, or tsetse. It lives in the bushes on the shores of lakes and rivers, and feeds on the blood of crocodiles, antelopes, and large mammals. When these food animals have the germ of the trypanosome, or sleeping sickness, it picks up and develops acutely infectivity after an incubation period of 31 days. Then, for 75 days, it is sure death to anyone or anything it bites. Without doubt, this must be the devil fly that the blacks talk about. Now I know what I'm heading for. Hope Mavana pulls through. Ought to hear from Lincoln in four or five days. 
He has a great reputation for success in things like this. My worst problem will be to get the flies to moor without his recognizing them. With his cursed, plotting scholarship, it would be just like him to know all about them, since they're actually on the record. January 15th. Just heard from Lincoln, who confirms all that the records say about Glossina palpalis. He has a remedy for sleeping sickness, which has succeeded in a great number of cases, when not given too late. Intermuscular injections of treparsamide. Since Mavana was bitten about two months ago, I don't know how it will work. But Lincoln says that cases have been known to drag on 18 months, so possibly I'm not too late. Lincoln sent over some of his stuff, so I've just given Mavana a stiff shot. He's in a stupor now. They've brought his principal wife from the village, but he doesn't even recognize her. If he recovers, he can certainly show me where the flies are. He's a great crocodile hunter, according to reports, and knows all Uganda like a book. I'll give him another shot tomorrow. January 16th. Vavana seems a little brighter today, but his heart action is slowing up a bit. I'll keep up the injections, but not overdo them. January 17th. Recovery really pronounced today. Mavana opened his eyes and showed signs of actual consciousness, although dazed after the injection. I hope Moore doesn't know about the trapasamide. There's a good chance he won't, since he never leaned much toward medicine. Mavana's tongue seems paralyzed, but I fancy that will pass if I could only wake him up. Wouldn't mind a good sleep myself, but not of this kind. January 25th. Mavana is nearly cured. In another week, I can let him take me into the jungle. He was frightened when he first came to, about having the fly take his personality after he died, but brightened up finally when I told him he was going to get well. His wife, Uguwe, takes good care of him now, and I can rest a bit. Then for the envoys of death. February 3rd. Mavana is well now, and I have talked with him about a hunt for flies. He dreads to go near the place where they got him, but I am playing on his gratitude. Besides, he has an idea that I can ward off disease as well as cure it. His pluck would shame a white man. There's no doubt that he'll go. I can get off by telling the head factor the trip is in the interest of local health work. March 12th. In Uganda at last. Have five boys besides Mavana, but they are all galas. The local blacks couldn't be hired to come near the region after the talk of what happened to Mavana. This jungle is a pestilential place, steaming with miasmal vapors. All the lakes look stagnant. In one spot we came upon a trace of cyclopean ruins, which made even the galas run past in a wide circle. They say these megaliths are older than man, and that they used to be a haunt or an outpost of the fishers from the outside, whatever that means, and of the evil gods, Sadogwa and Klulu. To this day they are said to have a malign influence, and are said to be connected somehow with the devil flies. March 15th. 
struck Lake Miolov this morning, where Mavana was bitten. A hellish green-scummed affair full of crocodiles. Mavana has fixed up a fly-trap of fine-wire netting, baited with crocodile meat. It has a small entrance, and once the quarry gets in, they don't know enough to get out. As stupid as they are deadly, and ravenous with fresh meat or a bowl of blood. Hope they can get a good supply. I've decided that I must experiment with them, find a way to change their appearance so a moor won't recognize them. Possibly I can cross them with some other species, producing a strange hybrid whose infection-carrying capacity will be undiminished. We'll see. I must wait. But I'm in no hurry now. When I get ready, I'll have Mavana get me some infected meat to feed my envoys of death. And then for the post office. Ought to be no trouble getting infection, for this country is a veritable pest hole. March 16th. Good luck. Two cages full. Five vigorous specimens with wings glistening like diamonds. Mavana is emptying them into a large can with a tightly meshed top, and I think we caught them in the nick of time. We can get them to Magonga without difficulty, taking plenty of crocodile meat for their food. Undoubtedly all or most of it is infected. April 20th. Back at Magonga, and busy in the laboratory, have sent to Dr. Joost in Pretoria for some tsetse flies for hybridization experiments. Such a crossing, if it works at all, ought to produce something pretty hard to recognize, yet at the same time just as deadly as the Papalis. If it doesn't work, I shall try certain other diptera from the interior, and I have sent to Dr. Vanderveld at Nyangwe for some of the Congo types. I shan't have to send Mavana for more tainted meat, after all, for I find I can keep cultures of the germ Trypanosoma gambiense, taken from the meat we got last month, almost indefinitely in tubes. When the time comes, I'll taint some fresh meat and feed my winged envoys a good dose. Then, bon voyage to them. June 18th. My sissy flies from Joost came today. The cages for breeding were already long ago, and I am now making selections, intending to use ultraviolet rays to speed up the life cycle. Fortunately, I have the needed apparatus in my regular equipment. Naturally, I tell no one what I'm doing. The ignorance of the few men here makes it easy for me to conceal my aims and pretend to be merely studying existing species for medical reasons. June 29th. The crossing is fertile. Good deposits of eggs last Wednesday. And now I have some excellent larvae. If the mature insects look as strange as these do, I need do nothing more. Am preparing separate numbered cages for the different specimens. July 7th. The new hybrids are out, and the disguise is excellent as to shape. But the sheen of the wings still suggests papalis. The thorax has faint suggestions of the stripes of the tsetse. Slight variation in individuals. Am feeding them all on tainted crocodile meat, and after infectivity develops, we'll try them on some blacks. Apparently, of course, by accident. There are so many mildly venomous flies around here 
that it can easily be done without exciting suspicion. I shall lose an insect in my tightly screened dining room when Bata, my houseboy, brings in breakfast, keeping well on the guard myself. When it has done its work, I'll capture or swat it, an easy thing because of its stupidity, or asphyxiate it by filling the room with chlorine gas. If it doesn't work the first time, I'll try again until it does. Of course, I'll have the triperosamide handy in case I get bitten myself, but I shall be careful to avoid biting, for no antidote is really certain. August 10th. Infectivity mature, and managed to get Bata stung in fine shape. Caught the fly on him, returning to its cage. Eased up the pain with iodine, and the poor devil is quite grateful for the service. Shall try a variant specimen on Gamba, the factor's messenger, tomorrow. That will be all the tests I shall dare to make here, but if I need more, I shall take some specimens to Kala and get additional data. August 11th. Failed to get Gamba, but recaptured the fly alive. Bata still seems to be as well as usual, and has no pain in the back where he was stung. Shall wait before trying to get Gamba again. August 14th. Shipment of insects from Vanderveld at last. Fully seven distinct species, some more or less poisonous, and keeping them well fed in case the tsetse crossing doesn't work. Some of these fellows look very unlike the Papalis, but the trouble is that they may not make a fertile cross with it. August 17th. Got Gamba this afternoon, but had to kill the fly on him. It nipped him on the left shoulder. I dressed the bite, and Gamba is as grateful as Bata was. No change in Bata. August 20th. Gamba unchanged so far, Bata too. Am experimenting with a new form of disguise to supplement the hybridization. Some sort of dye to change the telltale glitter of the Popolis wings. A blush tint would be best, something I could spray on a whole batch of insects. Shall begin by investigating things like Prussian and Turnbull's blue, iron and cyanogen salts. August 25th. Bata complained of a pain in his back today. Things may be developing. September 3rd. I have now made fair progress in my experiments. Bata shows signs of lethargy and says his back aches all the time. Gamba is beginning to feel uneasy in his bitten shoulder. September 24th. Bata is worse and worse and beginning to get frightened about his bite. Thinks it must be a devil fly, and entreated me to kill it, for he saw me cage it, until I pretended to him that it had died long ago. Said he didn't want his soul to pass into it upon his death. I give him shots of plain water with a hypodermic to keep his morale up. Evidently the fly retains all the properties of the papalis. Gamba is now down too, and repeating all of Bata's symptoms. I may decide to give him a chance with the trypersamide, for the effect of the fly has proved well enough. I shall let Bata go on, however, for I want a rough idea of how long it takes to finish a case. The dye experiments are coming along fine. An isomeric form of ferrous ferrocyanide with some admixture of potassium salts 
can be dissolved in alcohol and sprayed on the insects to splendid effect. It stains the wings blue without affecting the dark thorax much and doesn't wear off when I sprinkle the specimens with water. With this disguise, I think, I can use the present CC hybrids and avoid bothering with any more experiments. Sharp as he is, Moore could not recognize a blue-winged fly with a half-seatsy thorax. Of course, I must keep all this dye business strictly under cover. Nothing must ever connect me with the blue flies later on. October 9th. Bata is lethargic and has taken to his bed. Have been giving Gamba trapezomide for two weeks and fancy he'll recover. October 25th. Bata very low, but Gamba nearly well. November 18th. Bata died yesterday, and a curious thing happened, which gave me a real shiver in view of the native legends and Bata's own fear. When I returned to the laboratory, after the death, I heard the most singular buzzing and thrashing in cage 12, which contained the fly that had bitten Bata. The creature seemed frantic, but stopped still when I appeared, lighting on the wire netting and looking at me in the oddest way. It reached its legs through the wire as if it were bewildered. When I came back from dining with Alan, the thing was dead. Evidently it had gone wild and beaten its life out on the sides of the cage. It certainly is peculiar that this should happen just as Barter died. If any black had seen it, he'd have laid it at once to the absorption of the poor devil's soul. I shall start my blue-stained hybrids on their way before long. The hybrids' rate of killing seems a little ahead of the pure Popolis's rate. Bata died three months and eight days after infection, but of course there is always a wide margin of uncertainty. I almost wish I had let Gamba's case run on also. December 5th busy planning how to get my envoys to moor. I must have them appear to come from some disinterested entomologist who has read his diptera of Central and Southern Africa and believes he would like to study this new and unidentifiable species. There must also be ample assurances that the blue-winged fly is harmless, as proved by the native's long experience. Moore will be off his guard, and one of the flies will surely get him sooner or later though one just can't tell when. I'll have to rely on the letters of New York friends, they still speak of more from time to time, to keep me informed of early results, though I dare say the papers will announce his death. Above all, I must show no interest in the case. I shall mail the flies while on a trip, but it must not be recognized when I do. The best plan will be to take a long vacation in the interior, grow a beard, mail the package at Ukala while passing as a visiting entomologist, and return here after shaving off the beard. April 12, 1930 I am back in Maganga after my long trip. Everything has come off finely, with clockwork precision. Have sent the flies to Moor without leaving a trace. Got a Christmas vacation December 15th, and set out at once with the proper stuff. Made a very good mailing container with room to include some germ-tainted crocodile meat as food for the envoys. By the end of February 1st, had beard enough to shape into a close Van Dyke. Showed up at Ukala March 9th and typed a letter to Moore 
on the trading post machine. Signed it, Neville Wayland Hall, supposed to be an entomologist from London. Think I took just the right tone, interest of a brother scientist and all that. Was artistically casual in emphasizing the complete harmlessness of the specimens. Nobody suspected anything. Shaved the beard as soon as I hit the bush, so that there wouldn't be any uneven tanning by the time I got back. Dispensed with native bears except for one small stretch of swamp, I can do wonders with one knapsack, and my sense of direction is good. Lucky I'm used to such traveling. Explained my protracted absence by pleading a touch of fever and some mistakes in direction when going through the bush. But now comes the hardest part psychologically, waiting for news of more, without showing the strain. Of course, he may possibly escape a bite until the venom is played out, but with his recklessness, the chances are one hundred to one against him. I have no regrets after what he did to me. He deserves this, and more. June 30th, 1930. Hurrah! The first step has worked. Just heard casually from Dyson of Columbia that Moore had received some new blue-winged flies from Africa, and that he is badly puzzled over them. No word of any bite, though. But if I know more slipshod ways as I think I do, there'll be one before long. August 27th. 1930. Letter from Morton in Cambridge. He says more writes of feeling run down. Tells of an insect bite on the back of his neck from a curious new specimen that he received about the middle of June. Have I succeeded? Apparently Moore doesn't connect the bite with his weakness. If this is the real stuff, then Moore was bitten well within the insect's period of infectivity. September 12th, 1930. Victory! Another line from Dyson says that Moore is in really alarming shape. He now traces his illness to the bite, which he received around noon on June 19th, and he's quite bewildered about the identity of the insect. He's trying to get in touch with the Neville Wayland Hall who sent him the shipment. Of the hundred odd that I sent, about twenty-five seem to have reached him alive. Some escaped at the time of the bite, but several larvae have appeared from eggs laid since the time of mailing. He is, Dyson says, carefully incubating these larvae. When they mature, I suppose, he'll identify the C.C. Papalis hybridization, but that won't do him much good now. He'll wonder, though, why the blue wings aren't transmitted by heredity. November 8, 1930. Letters from a half-dozen friends tell of Moore's serious illness. Dyson's letter came today. He says Moore is utterly at sea about the hybrids that came from the lava, and is beginning to think that the parents got their blue wings in some artificial way. He has to stay in bed most of the time now. No mention of using tripersamide. February 13th, 1931. Not so good. Moore is sinking and seems to know no remedy, but I think he suspects me. Had a very chilly letter from Morton last month, which told nothing of Moore, and now Dyson writes, almost rather constrainedly, that Moore is forming theories about the whole matter. He's been making a search for 
Wayland Hall by Telegraph, at London, Ukala, Nairobi, Mombasa, and other places. Of course, he's found nothing. I judge that he's told Dyson whom he suspects, but that Dyson doesn't believe it yet. Fear Morton does believe it. I see that I'd better lay plans for getting out of here and effacing my identity for good. What an end to a career that started out so well. More of Moore's work, but this time he's paying for it in advance. I believe I'll go back to South Africa, and meanwhile will quietly deposit funds there to the credit of my new self. Frederick Naismith Mason of Toronto, Canada, broker in mining properties. We'll establish a new signature for the identification. If I never have to take the step, I can easily retransfer the funds to my present self. August 15th, 1931. Half a year gone and still suspense. Dyson Morton, as well as several other friends, seem to have stopped writing to me. Dr. James of San Francisco hears from Moore's friends now and then, and says Moore is in an almost continuous coma. He hasn't been able to walk since May. As long as he could talk, he complained of being cold. Now he can't talk. Though it is thought he still has glimmers of consciousness, his breathing is quick and short and can be heard some distance away. No question but that Trypanosoma gambiense is feeding on him. But he holds out better than the blacks around here. Three months and eight days finished Bata, and here more is alive over a year after being bitten. Heard rumors last month of an intensive search around Ukala for Wayland Hall. I don't think I need to worry yet, though, for there's absolutely nothing in existence to link me with this business. October 7th, 1931. It's over at last. News in the Mombasa Gazette. Moore died September 20th, after a series of trembling fits and with a temperature vastly below normal. So much for that. I said I'd get him, and I did. The paper had a three-column report of his long illness and death, and of the futile search for Wayland Hall. Obviously, Moore was a bigger character in Africa than I had realized. The insect that bit him has now been fully identified from the surviving specimens and developed larvae, and the wing staining is also detected. It is universally realized that the flies were prepared and shipped with intent to kill. Moore, it appears, communicated certain suspicions to Dyson, but the latter, and the police, are maintaining secrecy because of absence of proof. All of Moore's enemies are being looked up, and the Associated Press hints that, quote, an investigation, possibly involving an eminent physician, now abroad, will follow, unquote. One thing at the very end of the report, undoubtedly the cheap romancing of a yellow journalist, gives me a curious shudder in view of the legends of the blacks, by the way the fly happened to go wild when Bata died. It seems that an odd incident occurred on the night of Moore's death. Dyson reports having been aroused by the buzzing of a blue-winged fly, which immediately flew out of the window. That was just before the nurse telephoned of the death news from Moore's home, miles away in Brooklyn. 
But what concerns me most is the African end of the matter. People in Ukala remember the bearded stranger who typed the letter and sent the package, and the constabulary are combing the country for any blacks who may have carried him. I didn't use many, but if the officers question the Obandes who took me through the Nikini jungle belt, well, I'll have more to explain than I like. It looks as if the time has come for me to vanish. So tomorrow, I believe, I'll resign and prepare to start for parts unknown. November 9th, 1931. Hard work getting my resignation acted on, but release came today. I didn't want to aggravate suspicion by decamping outright. Last week I heard from James about Moore's death, but nothing more is in the papers. Those around him in New York seem rather reticent about details, though they all talk about a searching investigation. No word from any of my friends in the East. Moore must have spread some dangerous suspicions around before he lost consciousness. If there isn't an iota of proof he could have adduced. Still, I'm taking no chances. On Thursday I shall start from Mombasa, and from there I will take a steamer down the coast to Durban. After that I shall drop from sight. But soon afterwards the mining properties broker, Frederick Naismith Mason from Toronto, will turn up in Johannesburg. Let this be the end of my journal. If in the end I am not suspected, it will serve its original purpose after my death and reveal what would otherwise not be known. If, on the other hand, these suspicions do materialize and persist, it will confirm and clarify the vague charges and fill in many important and puzzling gaps. Of course, if danger comes my way, I shall have to destroy it. Well, Moore is dead, as he amply deserves to be. Now Dr. Thomas Slawenwhite is dead too. And when the body formerly belonging to Thomas Slawenwhite is dead, the public may have this record. End of part one.